Hi. My name's Chip, and I'm an alcoholic. I ain't had a drink all day long. I ain't hurt nobody today. I haven't hurt myself. I worked all week, paid my way, you know. Before I came up here, I was up in my room, and uh, this wonderful woman who I'm married to called me up and told me she loved me in a hurry home. And that might not sound much to you, but uh, where I come from, that's real special. You know, I heard y'all start us with a serenity prayer. I had to change that prayer. It never made no sense to me. And I say it a little bit different. I say, God, grant me the serenity to accept the people that I cannot change. The courage to change the one I can and the wisdom to know it's me. And I'll show you why. I want to ask y'all a question. How many of you people in your morning meditation got up this morning and said, how can I make Kip life just a little bit better today? <laughs> Not a one. See that? It's because you're all selfish and self-centered. And, <laughs> and I say this just because I care about you. Tomorrow when you get up, I want you to think, what can I do to make Kip's life just a little bit better today? <clears throat> I want to thank the host committee. They have been absolutely incredible. Um, I want to thank Pat Pick Me Up. I've had a blast with her. And I... And all the people I've got to meet here, like I get to meet everywhere, and our speakers, they've all been great. And I know our next one is great, you know. And, uh, and I want to thank the hotel staff who have been very gracious and made this possible. You know, and I, I, right now, I'd, I'd like all of us to give the host committee and this hotel and everybody a big hand for the job they've done here. <laughs> all right, now, here we go. I have brain damage, and I'm very, very sensitive, so if anybody has to get up and go to the bathroom, I'm going to stop, and we're going to start all over when you get back. <clears throat> so if everybody looks at you real, there goes one now. <laughs> I was raised in uh, the South, Southern California, and uh, my father's Irish, and Sue. And my mother's Irish and Cherokee. And I lived in an all-Hispanic neighborhood. <laughs> and my cousins are very dark-skinned, and they have dark hair and dark eyes. And, uh, and I had white hair and white skin and blue eyes. And I didn't fit in my family, and I didn't fit in my neighborhood. Everything changed for me. I remember it real clear. It was my very first day at kindergarten. My, I got the greatest mom in the world, man. My mom loves me. And my dad loved me, too. He just didn't know how. You know, the way it was around our house and the neighborhood, they'd hear my, my dad's truck coming up the road in the middle of the night. You know, everybody would get out of bed, turn off their TVs, and stop what they were doing and get their lawn chairs and start coming outside. You know, it was getting ready to happen. And, uh... Well, my mom, we didn't have a lot of money. My mama saved up her money, and she bought me this little suit, you know. And, and I can remember her dressing me, and I, I'll tell you, it was like I had a little beanie, little beanie cap, and a little blue jacket with a blazer on it, and a shirt and a bow tie and short pants. And I was scared when she was dressing me, and I loved my mama. I didn't want to hurt her feelings, you know, but uh, she walked me down to that school, and it was all Mexican kids, and they were all leaning against the wall, with their Levi's and their t-shirts and tennis shoes, watching them lead little 
Lord Pomperoy <laughs> to the sacrifice. <clears throat> and then she left me there. And uh, I don't have to tell you what happened. <laughs> I learned at a real early age. I learned at a real early age, you know, that, uh, that if I could make you more afraid of you, of me, than I was of you, you'd leave me alone. If I was willing to go to absolutely any length to impress you how insane I was, you would stay out away from me. And I learned that real early, and it worked real well for me and my brother both, and, uh, and that's the way we live. They moved out of that neighborhood after I turned about 12 years old, and they moved into this other neighborhood. It was a real middle class, and you know, about that time where I, where I come from, I was wearing a, a, a black trench coat and a black shirt and these black khakis and black boots, and my hair was down like this, and, you know, and I had this little walk, and I got along good in this neighborhood. And they moved in this neighborhood, and all, these guys were wearing corduroys and wingtips and madras shirts and going bitching. And, and, and all the, you know, and they were all surfers and, you know, that's the way it's been all my life. Every time I get the game down, people change the rules, you know. <laughs> and I didn't fit in there either, you know, and I, I was nuts and crazy and scared to death, absolutely terrified of this world. Then the San Diego Unified School District had this great idea. They figured it was about time to start teaching these young people about the dangers of narcotics. I was scared to death of alcohol. My dad was a drunk. My grandpa was a drunk. My uncle was a drunk. I didn't want nothing to do with alcohol. I'd lay in that bed at night. I swear to God, you know, that I'd never going to be nothing like my father or my grandfather or any of those men in my family. I mean, my brother would talk about the kind of men we wanted to be when we grew up, the kind of fathers we were going to be, the kind of husbands. It sure wasn't anything like them people. When we got into this class and they started talking to us about marijuana, I'd never heard of it. This is a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I respect the singleness of purpose with all my heart, but I only got one story. I ain't about to change it to make someone comfortable. <clears throat> and they were explaining, they showed this movie, and they were talking about the way it affected you and this and that, you know, and all I could, I could hardly wait, you know. <laughs> I was just absolutely amazed. I went, my God, I had no idea there was anything like that in this world. And I asked my buddy Balto, I said, Balto, can you get some of this stuff? And he said, sure, my old man smokes that stuff. So I said, well, bring some to school tomorrow. He brought some to school. I said, did you get it? He says, yeah, after school. So after school, I said, well, let's go. Where are we going to go? And uh, he said, well, we got to make a stop. I said, well, you got to stop at this liquor store. and we got we got a boost of some cheap wine. I said, why? He said, well, I don't know. He said, but my dad always drinks wine with it. <laughs> now, I didn't want to make no mistakes, you know, so... We, each of us, we stole us a short dog, a sweet red pork, and um, we went down this little canyon, we smoked this dope, and we drank this wine. And something happened. You see, I knew all about these first three steps a long time before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was powerless over this world, I knew it, you know, and my life was absolutely unmanageable. I was scared to death, I was terrified. I smoked that dope, and I drank that wine, and I came to believe that there was a power greater than myself. And I immediately, with no reservation, turned my will and life over to it, you know. I found the one thing in my life that worked. Man, it made me feel exactly the way I knew y'all felt, you know. And things started happening in my life right away. Um, a couple of years later, I got kicked out of the San Diego Unified School District because I hit a teacher for the second time. I had a little problem with authority. And uh, I got home, and uh, about three days later, my mom found my dope. 
and uh, she kicked me out of the house. My mom could start a whole new branch of Al-Anon. She has no problem. <laughs> Get out. And uh, I'd never been anywhere. I live in a little town. It was a tiny little town, uh, farming. Never been anywhere, never done anything. And uh, I went over to a place called Carlsbad, and I was talking to a friend of mine, told him what happened. I didn't know where I was going to go or what I was going to do. And he's reading the paper. He says, you know, they got this thing going on up in San Francisco, and all these people do is they drink. They smoke dope and they get high and, and they listen to music and they make love. No, I was getting high and listening to music and I was real actively interested in the other, so. <laughs> With no hesitation, I got nothing to do. I got on the Interstate 5 and got on the freeway and hitchhiked up to a place called San Francisco and I moved in this area called Haight-Ashbury in 1964. And I got a different kind of an education. I didn't quite fit in there either. All these hippies, they were all very peaceful. <laughs> I loved your dope, and I liked your music, and I loved your women, but uh, you give me any trouble, and I'd go nuts on you, you know. I'd, and I was kind of ostracized, but you see, I, I learned something. I learned something. My father had always told me I have to work hard. i got to do this. i got to do that if I want to have a piece of the pie. And, and I found out he was nuts. I found out at a very, very early age that if I had the bag, I could have anything I wanted and anybody I wanted. There ain't nothing I'm proud of, but that's the way it was. <clears throat> I got arrested in Mexico when I was 16 years old with 200 kilos of marijuana. And I went to jail in Mexico, a place called La Mesa Federal Prison. I don't know if you've ever been to prison, but I'll tell you, prison is not a nice place. And especially not a nice place in another country where you don't speak the language very well and you're a different color. And you're only 16, and not nice things happen to you in there. And if anything in this world should have taught me that I don't want to live in this world to experience these things, that should have been it. You see, I had money, and I had people on my side, and I wasn't there a long time. I was there for a few months, and they bailed me out, and they got me out of there, and, uh, and I continued to do what I do. When I was 18, my 18th birthday, I got arrested for 27 felonies. 5.30 in the morning, I woke up my eyes, and I, there was this cop standing in front of me. I heard someone talk last night about a foot on your neck and a gun being cocked, saying, don't move. <clears throat> That's a hell of a way to wake up on your birthday, you know? <laughs> That's one hell of a surprise party. And I went to prison on that. And a scary thing happened, you know? Just before my 19th birthday, uh, I was laying in my bunk, reading Louis L'Amour. And it suddenly dawned on me that I was more comfortable in that institution than I'd ever been on the streets. Those walls weren't for me. Those were for you people. They kept you out, you know. It was safe in there. I functioned great when I got someone to tell me what time to get up, what time to go to bed, what time to eat, what time to shower. And they lay out all the rules in black and white. There isn't any gray areas. I function. I love institutions, man. I just love it in there. I was more comfortable there than I'd ever been in school, and it scared me to death. You know, I got out of there just before I turned 19, just a few days, and uh, while I was in there, there was this gal that I'd been hooked up with, and, uh, and she was pregnant. And I, I, I looked for her. I wanted to see that baby so bad, and uh, her family, they were a real good family, and they, they got her as far away from me as humanly possible, and I couldn't track her down, and I couldn't find that baby. 
And I wanted to see that baby so bad. And I looked for that baby for years, and I never could find her. But I continued to get in trouble, and things were going just... It was just, it was a nutty time in California. A lot of things were going on. And, and there was this young gal, a doctor's daughter, who had... Uh, she was 15 years old, and she bailed me out of jail three times in one week. And I knew that that's love. You know. She woke up a judge at 2 o'clock in the morning, 15-year-old girl, to make bail for me. And I said, baby, I'm keeping you on my side, you know, and, uh, and I, we got married. And, uh, and Kathy was one of the best friends I've ever had, you know, and she is to this very day. We went about our business and we did what we did, you know, and uh, we had the money and the resources and uh, we had a lot of fun, did a lot of traveling. And, uh, about two years, we had a little boy. I never knew anything about love. But when they, I went to that hospital and they brought that little boy out, and he was a tiny little thing, you know, and I looked at him and for the very first time in my life, I fell in love with a human being. I mean, just head over heels in love. I'd never felt that feeling. I loved my mom, and I'd had a lot of lust, but I'd never, ever felt that feeling before, and it just was so overwhelming. It was the most spiritual moment of my life, and I, and I made all these plans, and I remembered those things, what kind of a father I was going to be, and all the things, the promises that I'd made myself, and I made this little boy all these promises of what kind of father I was going to be and the things that we were going to do together and all, and all these dreams. And, uh, and a couple of years later, this woman gave me a little girl, and it was just exactly the same thing. They put that little girl in my arms, and I fell head over heels in love with another human being. And I made all these promises to her and to me, and you know, and, I, and I'm a real alcoholic. I don't know if you can relate to this, but if she's in my arms. She was about uh, 15, 20 minutes old. I'm already thinking about some guy who's going to come and ask me to marry her someday. I better start planning for the wedding. <laughs> And I had these dreams, and I made her these promises, and I, I made me these promises. And life went on, you know, and it, on the outside of my life, I had it made, man. I, I had it all. I had the money. I had the resources. I had a real nice place. I had a place in uh, Southern California. I had a place in Mexico. I had a place in San Francisco, and uh, I didn't work. I made a lot of money other ways, and, uh, and I built a place for my children, the kind of place I always wanted. I bought a nice big place along this creek and we dammed it up and made a pond and put out this big, all every kind of playground equipment and everything in this world. And I played with my kids all day long. And I did all those things and I was, I was a good father and I loved my kids. And, uh, and one day, September 7th, I want you to remember that date. It's a very important date in my life. September 7th, uh, me and my son, we were, we were out in the garage, we were playing, we were doing some stuff. My, my son was born deaf. And you couldn't take your eyes off him. He had to be with you all the time because he'd go one way and you'd go the other. I mean, a lot of stories on that one. But you, you, he always had to be under parental supervision. And I got loaded that day. I got loaded. And it was real hot, you know, and I, I didn't think about it. I just got on my bike and I went up the store to go get something to drink. And as I was coming back and coming down the road, I, I saw the big crowd of people and uh, I saw the fire department and the police department there at my house, which wasn't anything new, but I got up there and I waited through this crowd and my son had chased me out of the driveway and he got run over by a truck. And I waited through that crowd 
And I saw my son laying there, and his head was split open, and I could see his brains. And uh, there was bones protruding out of his body, and he was seven years old, and he was the sunshine of my life. And something inside of me died that day. I spent the next nine months with my son in a, in a coma, trying to make a deal with this God that you people talked about. I heard other people, God did, never did nothing for me, and he didn't do nothing for me then. My son lived, he, he had massive, massive brain damage. And he suffered with that brain damage the rest of his life. Physically, socially, and every other aspect of his life. And every time I looked at him, I knew it was my fault. I got loaded. I forgot I was a parent and I left. And, and as a result of my actions, my son was destroyed. And I carried that guilt. My brother, who was the best friend I've ever had in my life. My brother, we were only 11 months apart. And we backed each other's play right or wrong. And he went everywhere I went. And, uh, and we could do no wrong in each other's eyes. He was the best friend I've ever had. And uh, My brother came down with an organic mental disease called schizophrenia. And my family had him committed to a hospital. And my brother called me from this hospital after he got stabilized. And he said, Kip, get me out of here. And that's all he had to say. It wouldn't matter if he was in a federal penitentiary. I would have got him out of there, you know, if he asked me to. And I had money and I got a lawyer and I got my brother out of that place and uh, I bought him a trailer and I put him on my property and uh, and my brother got away from his treatment and from his medication he started getting loaded with me and we started doing what we always did and he started getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And one day I had to come back, I had to go to Oklahoma and uh, my brother was, he wouldn't let go of me. He just kept, he said, I don't know what's going on man, I'm coming apart, something's not right, you know. And he was crying and, and I said, I gotta go Bill, I just gotta go man, I'll be back, hang tight baby. And I gave him a handful of money. And I, I always figured money would fix everything. It always has. And I, I said, I'll be back in three days. And me and you'll take care of this. It's always been me and you. And it always will. And I left. And I, and I got back. And the scam I was doing, it went sideways on me. And I, I was gone for a couple of weeks. And I got back looking for my brother. And nobody had seen him. I went to that trailer. And I opened the door. And his head rolled out. Because he'd taken that money on the third day and bought a gun and blown his head off. And it was just a pile of maggots laying at the door. I mean, you know, I don't tell you any of this story for you. I don't need your sympathy or anything else. You know, the only reason I tell you any of this is to remind you there are people who got here with grave emotional and mental disorders, you know, and I'm one of those people. Something inside of me broke that day that was never to be repaired. And I'll tell you this from my heart to yours, to thank God for alcohol. And I thank God for narcotics. If, it would, if I would have had to feel what was going on because I had no tools, if alcohol would not have worked for me, if it had not done what alcohol does for me, I would not be here today. I would have blown my brains out right with my brother. And the stuff started going. My, you know, I started getting nuttier and I started getting crazier and, I, and alcohol has a weird effect on me. I get real violent and real nuts. And I... And my wife had me in a hospital. And I don't forget this. The first time I heard the word alcohol, she had me in there for brain scans. She goes, something's wrong with him. Then I'm laying there and they'd run all these CAT scans and all these different things on my brain. And the doctor, I remember I was laying in my bed in this hospital because I'd gone through these seizures and all this stuff that we do. And she's standing there arguing and said, there's nothing wrong with your husband. She goes, run more tests. People do not act like him. And she goes, he's an alcoholic. And when I remember I heard that word, my heart stopped. I think he was trying to imply that I should stop drinking I would have much rather had brain cancer at that time. Brain cancer is a real good reason to drink, you know. He was implying that the only thing that I could use to live in this world, that maybe I shouldn't be doing it. 
so I got rid of her. Anybody here ever drank Mad Dog 2020? <laughs> what were they thinking? <laughs> buddy of mine came over and he brought these two big bottles of this stuff over to my house and uh, my wife was gone. It was just me and my little girl. We started drinking this stuff and uh, the next thing I knew this lady tapped me on the shoulder and said, sir, we've landed. <laughs> and I come to and I'm on this big wide-bodied jet and uh, my daughter's asleep against me and the plane's empty and I said, where am I? And she said, you're in Fort Lauderdale. I said, I don't like Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> I don't know anything about that, but you have a one-way ticket and you have to get off the plane. And I got off that plane, and my little girl, I found out that I had sold about $80,000 worth of antique and things for uh, to get out of town real quick for about $2,000. And, and I got there, and I, my daughter was wondering what the heck was going on. I'd woken her up in a drunken stupor out of a sound sleep, got her all dressed took a cab, went to the airport, put her on the airplane, didn't tell her what was going on, and uh, and she was scared. She didn't know what was going on, and I made her these promises. I said, baby, it's going to be different here. We don't know nobody here, and I'm going to get a job, and I'm going to go to work, and we're going to get a house, and we're going to have a nice, normal life, I promise you, with a solemn oath. The only one problem is I've never had a job. <clears throat> I can walk downtown and I can see a player from six miles away and, uh, and I know how to make money and I always gravitate towards that segment of society. It's the only way I knew how to live. And I would inevitably start using drugs and start drinking and, uh, and when I would start drinking, something would happen and someone would get hurt and we would have to leave and we'd get to this place and I would make her a solemn promise that things are going to be different here. And by the time my daughter was nine years old, we'd been on the road for two years. We'd lived in a number of places, in a number of states. And I was in Oklahoma City, and I came home drunk one more time, and I had blood on me, and it wasn't mine. My daughter took one look at me, and she knew we were leaving. And she grabbed her doll and she ran for the back door. That's the way we were living. And I was right behind her and we got on that Greyhound bus and I, and I passed out. And I come to right outside Albuquerque, New Mexico. And my daughter was rocking and she was crying. And I said, what's the matter, honey? And she says, Daddy, I am so hungry. You have not fed me. And I said, baby, as soon as we stop, I'll get you something to eat. And we stopped and I, you ever know, I don't travel by buses, but they're always in the, one of the better parts of town. They always have a nice little honky-tonk right there, and there's always a cheap little liquor store right next to it. And, uh, and I got off this place, and I was sicker than a dog. Man, I was shaking, and I needed a drink. And I went in that liquor store, and I got me a bottle of port wine, and I got her a sandwich, and I went up to pay for it. And I only had enough money for one or the other. And I'll tell you, I've done a lot of horrible things in this world. I've done things that I don't ever share from the podium, but I've never done anything in my life that haunted me more than that moment because I had to put her sandwich back. And I had to get on that bus with that cheap wine in my breath one more time and look my little girl in the, in the eye and tell her we're going to have to wait.
And she just looked at me and she knew. I'll never ever forget those eyes when she's looking at me. The only person in the world that she had. And I took her food money and I drank it. And she had no place to go. And I love my kids. I, I give my life for my kids. I got back to California and I went to my mom's house. My mom took one more, you know, same old thing. She took one look at me. She grabbed my daughter, said, get out. And I grabbed my daughter. I said, where will we go? She grabbed my daughter and said, we ain't going nowhere. You are. And thank God for moms, you know. And I thank God she took my daughter. Because the rest of my journey was very painful. She says, share in a general way. The next few years, I, I was a wino. I, I lived in the streets. I lived on the side of the road. I, I, my favorite spot was a place in Carlsbad, right on the beach, in this little bamboo patch. And it was right where a septic tank drained down this hill, and it was real smelly. Nobody ever wanted to go in there, and it was a little bamboo forest, in a, and it was dark and gray, and it stunk. It looked just like the inside of my head, and it was real comfortable in there. And there was a 7-Eleven I could panhandle right across the street, and I'd go over there and panhandle, get me some wine, and I'd crawl back to my bushes, and I'd drink my wine, and I would do that until I got hit by a car, till I hurt myself, or till I did something stupid, and I went to jail. And when I'd get out, I'd start the whole process over again. And I'd lived like that for about two years. I've been to AA before by now. You know, I've been in jails. I've been in institutions, and these H&I people, they come in, and uh, they were all citizens. They weren't people like me. Besides that, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. Drug addicts have a lot more class than alcoholics, you know. <laughs> alcoholics is all I can afford right now. <laughs> I walked up to the 7-Eleven. It must have been on a Sunday because there was a lot of people looked like they were going to church or something, you know. And, I, and I'm waiting in front of this 7-Eleven. I'm sick. I'm sick and I need a drink and I see this big four-door sedan pull up and, and there's this man in this square three-piece suit and he's got his square little wife and he's got his square little kids and, uh, and I'm wondering how he can live that way, you know. And it was a guy I grew up with and he was one of those kids I couldn't stand, you know. He was one of those white kids that lived up on the hill, you know. He didn't live in the barrio. He lived up on the hill and, uh, and his family was... Well, well, well known in Vista, you know, they were very reputable people and and they had bought him a car when he was a kid and everyone liked him, you know, and and I hated people like that. And I saw this man and I see he walked by me and he looked at me and I, I was embarrassed. I don't know why. I hadn't been embarrassed in a long, long, long time. And he walked by and he looked at me and he gave me two dollars. And two dollars first thing in the morning is a jackpot. I mean, I can buy a quart of wine, and that's going to last me till 3 o'clock. You know, I can stay well till 3 o'clock on $2. And I took the money, and I went and got my wine, and I looked at that family looking at me, and I was cussing them because I knew they were judging me. And that man's a real good friend of mine today. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not here to talk about religion because religion has no place in Alcoholics Anonymous as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, that's a good Christian family. And that family got out of that car that morning in that parking lot, and they got on their knees, and they prayed for that poor drunk. I was sitting in that bamboo patch that morning cussing them people and I opened up that wine and the damnedest thought I've ever had came up. Maybe I ought to go to AA. <clears throat> they had told me that if I ever had a problem with alcohol that I could come to Alcoholics Anonymous and they would help me. They would open their arms to me and hug me and welcome me in. They promised me all this stuff. It was hard to get any denial going. 
I've been living in these clothes for two years, and I've lost control of a lot of bodily functions, and a lot of things lived on me besides me. And my hair was about down here, and my beard was down there, and there was a lot of things besides me living in it. <clears throat> and I don't know how to this day. I do not remember how, but I know friends of mine that were there. And I remember walking into this meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, expecting them to welcome me. And I walked in. The meeting had already started. And there was a kind of a gasp at the door. And I sat down. And this lady quickly moved over, which was probably a good decision. <clears throat> and I'm sitting there. And people are looking at me. And I got this crazy look in my eye. I don't smell real good at all. And uh, I'm looking at and these people look a lot like y'all. I mean, they're all nice and clean cut, man. And uh, there's cars out there and, and people are... I'm going, I wonder if they have a room for the more severe cases. <laughs> Didn't look like any alcoholics I ever knew. I got a funny thought I can remember. You know when it's really bad when you're a wino? It's when all the other winos are at the end of the street gathered up talking about you. <laughs> I sat down and I'm looking around. You know, yeah. Immediately, I knew I was right because you guys were talking about God, which kind of made my stomach curdle. And uh, the next thing you did was pass a basket. I said, they're going to start singing. I know it. <clears throat> Pretty soon, they're going to start singing. And I'm getting, I'm really nervous. I'm getting out of here. I knew I was right about this outfit, you know. And, and there was this one old gal. I've never seen her again. I had never seen her before. She was an elderly lady, and she kept looking at me, and she was the only person out of that whole crowd that kept smiling at me from the minute I walked in. This woman was glad to see me. I knew I didn't have anything she wanted, but uh, I couldn't. I figured this gal must have brain damage, man. She just kept, every time she tried to catch my eye, tried to smile at me, you know, and uh, I'm getting ready to get my hat, and about the same time she knew it, she stood up real quick. She introduced herself as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she looked me right in the eye, and she said this. She says, you know, I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous 27 years ago. And I walked up the door and I looked in and I saw you good people and you're all so clean, especially you ladies. And I knew that when you saw me, you had turned your back on me. She says, I've been a prostitute on the streets most of my adult life and I've done everything a woman had to do to live out there. And I knew how you nice ladies in the suburbs treated people like me. And that's who you look like. And I turned around to leave, but a lady came up and got me a cup of coffee and gave me a hug and said, please don't go. We need you. And that lady walked right over in front of all them good people. She put her arms around me and she kissed me right on the mouth and she whispered in my ear. She said, honey, please don't leave. We need you so bad. And I started crying. Ain't nobody said that to me in a long time. Nobody touched me with love in a long time. And nobody told me to come back. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and nobody told me they needed me. And so I started coming to this outfit called A&A. &A. <laughs> and every one of you lied to me right from the gate. Because you told me, you told me this. You said, if you will stop drinking, things will get better. <laughs> now, I don't know what alcohol did for these people, but um, I don't have a problem as long as I'm drinking. <laughs> you see, alcohol is not my problem. I have an acute allergic reaction to sobriety. <laughs> you know. <laughs> alcohol has never been my problem. It never will be my problem. Alcohol was my solution. And my solution worked real good. You'd also told me about getting a sponsor. And I've had parole officers most of my life. 
I'm not about to volunteer, you know. And uh, I saw that stuff about uh, God, which I, uh, yeah. And then I saw that list up there. It said, made a list of everything I've ever done and told someone. Hmm. I learned when I was a kid in prison in Mexico, man, you don't cop to nothing, even if they got pictures. <laughs> Never, ever, ever share a weakness with another man. They'll use it against you. And so I drove right by that. I looked at that other one and said, <clears throat> make amends? <laughs> you give me something, it's on you. <laughs> you know, I don't give nothing back. If it gets in my hands, it's mine. And I can rationalize anything I've ever done. And so, you know, it was kind of like what my dad had told me. He told me I had to get a job and I had to do this and I had to do that. You know, I'm a smart, I've been in jail in three different countries and, and I always land on my feet. You know, he showed me up, I'll find out who's running this place, find out what their vice is and supply it. You know, and so I started looking for the leader of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I met quite a few people who, who thought they were. <laughs> And I continue to do so. <laughs> and I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. I didn't know what you people had. And a big bunch of you didn't have anything I wanted, to be quite honest with you. You talked about getting jobs. You talked about doing all this stuff that I don't know how to do. Someone even suggested getting an ID in my name, you know. <laughs> the ridiculous thing to do. I went to meetings on a regular basis for six years. And for six years, I was Southern California's token drunk at every meeting. I wanted what you had. I was not willing to do anything you wanted me to do. <laughs> I was hoping that someone was going to say something at a meeting someday, and it was a, something magic was going to happen, and it was going to strike me sober. I was hoping one of you young gals would fix me. Several tried. I've always been very grateful. Didn't work out too well for me uh, or them, and uh, but it was a learning experience, and, uh, and my disease progressed, and it got nuttier and nuttier and nuttier. And you know, I'd go to these meetings, and I'd sit with you, and, and I would find out what you wanted me to say, and I'd say it, and I'd stick to those meetings. I'd stay as long. I'd try to get you to go out to coffee with me at night, and I'd go to coffee with you, and I'd tell you what you wanted to hear, so you'd sit with me, and beg you to stay, and, and then pretty soon you'd have to go home to your lives, and you'd leave, and you'd leave me. And I'd go crazy. And I'd do that until I had to drink. And this went on and on. Christmas morning, 1983, I woke up in the rubber room, butt naked, handcuffed, blood all over me. My face stuck to the floor in that little rubber hole right in the very center of the room. And, I, and the cops looking in the window laughing at me, you know, and you, you just know Santa Claus isn't coming when that happens. <laughs> found out I'd gotten in an argument with a police officer and lost rather badly that night and uh, they knew me real good it was Christmas they just let me go and I wasn't going to come back to AC I'm that person they talk about in chapter 5 I'm not going to get sober I'm tired of humiliating myself in front of you people and I, I'm not coming back here so I went and go do it I, I drink that's what I do I made a conscious decision I'm going to go drink that's, I drink till I drop and I started drinking I started drinking as soon as I got out and on January 6th of 1984, 
was a very important day in my life because I remember that day crystal clear because that was the day that alcohol stopped working. And it was the most tragic experience in my life. When alcohol didn't take away the pain no more, it didn't take away the feelings, it amplified it, and I couldn't get enough alcohol in me to stop it. I couldn't stop the screaming in my head. And alcohol wouldn't do it, and I was scared to death. I'd been to AA, and AA didn't work. And alcohol was my solution, man, and alcohol didn't work, and AA didn't work. And I got to that part where they talk about in the vision for you. That I know what it means to the very bottom of my soul where it comes. There'll come a time where you will not be able to imagine life with alcohol or without it. Now, if you're an alcoholic like me, that's the most, that is the most desolate place in this universe. You'll know loneliness such as few people can imagine. And at that moment, I was the loneliest human being on the face of the earth. And if loneliness would have been a tangible thing, it would have absolutely eaten me alive. And we wished for the end. And with no hesitation, I pulled out my gun and I put it to my heart and I pulled the trigger and it blew my left lung and two ribs out and knocked me up against the wall. And I was sliding down that wall and I was looking at the blood pumping out of my chest and the only thought I had was, thank God this is over with. Thank God this is over. Thank God I'm not going to have to humiliate myself no more. Thank God I'm not going to hurt nobody that cares about me no more. Just let me out of this nightmare. There was this old man, a guy named Charlie Tuck. I'll break his anonymity. He's passed on. Charlie Tuck used to be Al Capone's bodyguard. He's an old gangster from Chicago and the kindest, most loving human being I've ever known in my life. No, six years I was going to those meetings, old Charlie came up to me at a meeting one night and he had a grin and he had a real deep gravelly voice. He got right down in my face and he said, you're the scaredest person in this world. I said, no, I'm not. He said, you think you're tough? I said, you bet I'm tough. He said, you ain't tough. He said, you're the scaredest son of a bitch in this room. He said, that might make you dangerous, but it don't make you tough. And he walked away laughing at me. Just... So every time I'd go to a meeting, man, I'd see that old man looking to make sure he wasn't there. You know? <clears throat> well, Charlie's a... Can't be a good meeting. <clears throat> see, my greatest fear I've ever had in my life, but I didn't find this until I did my fourth step, the greatest fear I've ever had was that you men were going to see how terrified I was. I'll do anything in this world to prove to you I'm not afraid, but inside, I am dying, man. I am so terrified, I'm just absolutely petrified. But I'm more afraid of you seeing that fear than running and this old man knew exactly who I was. And I avoided him like the plague. You guys thought I died when I shot myself, didn't you? <laughs> no, no. I come to and I heard that old gravelly voice that Charlie took. At the foot of my... I opened one eye. I, can, I got tubes coming out of every hole in my body and a few new ones I'd made. And uh, I went, oh my... God, they've let them people in here. There's nothing sacred. <laughs> I said he's going to start preaching that A and A stuff. Ugh. I open one, I see him, there's these two youngsters standing there, and their eyes are about this big, and they're looking at me, and he's got his arms, and he's foot of my bed. And you know what Charlie said? He said, you see this fella here? And they're going, yeah. He goes, this is what happens when you don't work the steps. <laughs> Charlie didn't know how sensitive I was. <laughs> I didn't want him to talk to me, but I sure wanted him to feel sorry for me, you know. And uh, he just took his two pigeons with him, and they walked out of the room. 
I might mention those two men are still sober today. I was doing active 12-step work long before I was sober. I ain't going to come back to this place. They finally let me out of there after about three months. So, you know, they cleaned me out like a catfish, stapled me back together, and I got on my way, you know. And uh, I ran into a good buddy of mine who just did the mother of all scams. He made $7 million. Had the big house on the hill. Had the most beautiful women I've ever seen up there living there. Had the best dope. Had the best liquor. He said, come on up here, Kip. And I went up there, and he's trying to teach me how to make martinis. I'm looking for something in the screw cap, you know. It takes too long to make a martini. Just pour the damn stuff. Give me the bottle. I'm still wanting alcohol to work, and it don't work. I'm still wanting the dope to work. It don't work. I'm still wanting you women to work, and that don't work. Then inside, I'm dying, and it ain't getting no better, and I just want to die. I want to die so bad. I would drink myself until... Until I passed out. And my first thought I'd come to, and the first thought, I said, God, I'm still alive. Ugh, no, and i got to start it all over again. If I drink enough, if I use enough dope, if I do, I'm afraid to shoot. That hurts too much. <laughs> Damn. But uh, I just wanted to drink myself to death, and I just kept coming to, and I wouldn't die. And on May 12, 1984, I came to the same way I've come to so many times, the same fact, God, I'm still alive. And the only thing that I could think about it was like it was ringing in my ears was the ABCs, which are read at the end of Chapter 5. At every meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Southern California. And the ABC is basically the first three steps. So I'm an alcoholic. I, I knew I was an alcoholic. At this time, the state of California was in the process of trying to make me a ward of the state of California. It had been quite apparent to everybody that I could no longer manage my life. And I was definitely a danger to myself and others. And, you know, my psychiatrist was urging me for this, man. I had a state psychiatrist. He says, hey, you'll never have to go to jail again. They're going to give you this card and you just keep it on you. And when you get in trouble or do something stupid, they'll put you back in the hospital. I like hospitals. They care in there. You ever been in prison? They don't care in there. <clears throat> they don't care if you're having a good day or you're tense. <clears throat> or on a scale of 1 to 10 how do you feel today <laughs> and they're co-educational <clears throat> and if you're feeling real tense they'll give you drugs to calm you down and, uh, and I like those places you know much better than prison it was sounding good you know it was really sounding good to volunteer for this program and, uh, but the only thing I think of you know that I'm an alcoholic what does that mean I know I'm an alcoholic you know what I, and the 12 by 12 it says I can admit this all I want. It don't count. To my innermost self, in here where I live, where no one else can see, just me, totally accept the fact that I'm an alcoholic and what that implies. And all of a sudden, you know, I had this picture, because I got a million stories of being unmanageable over alcohol and, and powerless over alcohol and my life being unmanageable, but the one that stood out more than anyone was the one I told you about. That morning that I took my daughter's food. I could see her face looking at me. And I realized for the very first time what that word alcoholic means. And, uh, and what it means to me is this. That I have an allergic reaction to this chemical. And when I put it in my body, it no longer matters about who I love or what I love. It don't matter about my dreams, my plans, and it sure as hell don't matter about yours. That I have to do whatever alcohol tells me to do. And what it always tells me is the same thing. It says, get me some more, kid. And I'll give up anybody and anything to get it. Said my life's unmanageable, you know. I, I love chaos. To this very day, I love chaos. I hate knowing what's going to happen next, you know. And I thought that's kind of like what it meant. But I started thinking about when I was a young man laying in that bunk, talking to my brother about the kind of man I wanted to be. 
and the kind of father I wanted to be and the kind of husband I wanted to be. And I got a real crystal clear picture of the kind of man I grew up to be. And I realized the way I run my life is absolutely a mess. That I hated so much, that God stuff. God had never done anything for me. I prayed out to that God when I was a young man in jail. God didn't cut me no slack. I cried out to that God when my son was laying there with his brains laying on the road and God didn't cut me no slack. And when I picked up my brother's head, you know, and I prayed to this God and nothing ever happened. God's the one to put me in that insane asylum. God, the things I've seen people doing and I have done to get drugs and alcohol and to live in the world that I lived in. If there was a God, he certainly had a perverse sense of humor and I wanted nothing to do with him. God was for those people in the suburbs. He liked them people. He didn't like people like me. I just pissed him off right from the gate, you know, and I want nothing to do with this God. But I started thinking about the people that I had met, and not only in Alcoholics Anonymous, the people I've met in this world who had what I wanted. And it wasn't their money, and it wasn't their cars, and it wasn't their women. It was a look in their eye and a certain dignity they had. And all these people had one thing in common. They had a certain little look in their eye, and that's what I wanted. And every one of these people talked about this power. They talked about this power that did for them what they could not do for themselves. I got down on my knees that morning. I crawled out of that bed. And I said this little prayer, and it ain't changed too much since that day. And I said, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you are, and I don't think it makes much difference. But from this moment on, I will do whatever you put in front of me if I don't have to use any alcohol or narcotics, and if you're not there, I'm screwed. And all I know is I experienced grace that day because something happened that I don't have the vocabulary or words to describe to you, but you that know, know. I suddenly knew for the first time that I wasn't going to have to drink that day. I knew that if I kept that simple concept, that that's what had been missing all along. If I kept that concept, that I could stay sober today. I went to my mother's house. I was so sick. I was, I was completely bloated. My eyes were swollen shut from the alcohol. It was just, I couldn't stop crying. It wasn't tears of grief or joy or anything. It was alcohol. My eyes, I was just swollen and bloated. And I got to my mother's house and I said, Mom, would you please let me detox on your floor? And my mom stood in the door for a long time and she just stared at me. And she said, come on in one more time. And she let me lay on her floor and she made me some soup and she calmed me through the convulsions and she sat there with me and on. And on that third day, I could move around a little bit and I went over to that old man Charlie Tuck's house and I walked up to his door and, and his lovely wife Edie, God bless her, she's gone too. And she opened the door she told me she loved me. She didn't even know me. She was a member of Al-Anon. And she opened the door. She said, I've heard about you. And she goes, I love you. Come on in, honey. And I sat there. And Charlie came in. And he said, he looked at me. And he said, Chip, good to see you. And he gave me a big hug like he was expecting me. And he said, what can I do for you? And I said, Charlie, I don't ever want to drink again. He says, yeah. He said, well, what are you willing to do? And he said, I'll do anything in this world. He said, you done? He said, I pray to God I'm done, Charlie. He said, that's the right answer. He said, okay. He says, Kip, I'm going to tell you something, and I'm going to tell all of you this. And I'm so grateful my sponsor built my recovery on this real simple concept. He said, Kip, he says, I've been watching you for a long time. And people like you don't get sober. A lot of you don't even get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, you are a very damaged human being. And this is the way it's going to have to be for you. Your recovery, your sobriety, is going to have to be the absolute most important thing in your life. And the things that you have to do to maintain your sobriety. The day that you think your children, that any woman, that any job, that anything in this world is more important than you doing the things you have to do to maintain your sobriety. 
That's the beginning of your end, and you ain't never going to get to get sober again. I'm going to tell you right now, the door ain't going to swing both ways for you. God has given you a window. You better step through and don't ever look back. He said, are you willing to do that? And I said, yes, sir. He took me out across the street. He lived across the street from this little park. And it was on a, must have been on a weekend, and a, there all the families there, they're having birthday parties for little kids, and he said, come over here. And there was all these people standing around, and he made me get on my knees with him in this park. And I'd been on my knees, face first in that gutter, but I was embarrassed. I didn't get on my knees in front of all these people, but he said, get on your knees. And he sat there, and he held my hand, and he taught me the third step prayer. And Charlie walked me through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, one at a time, very, very thoroughly, and he emphasized two of them real strongly, and that was the third step, the fourth step, and especially the eleventh step. He told me that everything about me was going to be contingent upon my spiritual maintenance. He said, I want you to go start going to meetings every single day. He says, I want you to get three commitments. I want you to get a commitment at a step study meeting, a book study meeting, and a men's money meeting. He says, I want you to get to every meeting early. I want you to shake every hand that walks through the door and get every number anyone will give you. He said, every single morning, I want you to get on your knees, do the same prayer we just did, and call three other alcoholics. And don't tell them how your day is going. Ask them about theirs. And things started happening. Things started happening. The next thing he told me, I couldn't figure out what had to do with anything. He told me to get a job. I said, Charlie, I need to work on my recovery. He said, sober people work. <clears throat> we are self-supporting. He says, you talk about dignity, you haven't got any. He says, you know how you get dignity? You get up and you go to work every day and you buy it back. <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> I said, Charlie, I don't know how to do nothing. They're not hiring any amateur pharmacist. <sighs> He says, how'd you get sober? He said, I got on my knees and I asked God. He says, get on your knees. Tell God you've got to learn a trade. You're 36 years old. It's time for you to learn something. He said, you know, take the first job he gives you because that's what God wants you to be. I said, okay. Sounds like hocus pocus to me, you know. But uh, I got on my knees. I said, God, I got to learn a trade. I got to learn how to support myself in this world. I'll take whatever you got. I'd also told Charlie, see, the state of California took my driver's license away and promised me I would never have it again in my whole life. My fifth 502 was .48, and it really pissed him off. And uh, I told him I didn't have a car. He said, you got two legs. You can walk. And uh, So I walked out to the road, turned around to hitchhike. The very first car, I kid you not, I'm not telling you a story. The very first pickup rolled up. The guy pulled right up to me, rolled down his window. He said, hey, buddy, you want a job? Scared me to death. I said, what is it? He said, it's painting. I said, I don't like the paint. He says, I'll teach you. I said, I haven't got a car. He says, my shop's around the corner. If you can get there in the morning, I'll get you to and from. Okay. <laughs> I go back in my front of the house in the and I call Charlie. I said, Charlie, I got a job. I thought he was going to be impressed. It's been 10 minutes. I'm gainfully employed. <laughs> he didn't bat an eye. He said, what is it? I said, painting. He said, that's a good job for you, Kip. You don't have to think very much. <laughs> he says... Now, one of the things that I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous real early was a word that since I've been around, I don't see a lot of people where I come from taking it quite as serious as what it was put in. It's the word commitment. He told me this. He said a, a commitment as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous goes like this. If you say you're going to do something, there's only one excuse for not doing it. You died on the way there. And, I mean, he was dead serious about that. I, I had a coffee commitment at St. Michael's one night, and he called me up. Someone ratted me out. 
Don't do that in here. You know. <clears throat> Called up my sponsor, said I wasn't there to make the coffee, and I, and he said, Well, how come you aren't there to make the coffee? And I said, Charlie, I got the flu. I'm sicker than a dog. I feel like I'm dying. He what he says, Kip? He says, You can die on the way there. You can die while you're making the coffee. Or you can die on the way home. But that's your commitment. That ain't your friend's commitment. That's yours. They trusted you with that. And they're like, no, you used up all your excuses years ago, boy. He says, you get your butt down there and you clean up the coffee. And that's the way it was. And I'm grateful my sponsor could have met. If anyone let me use an excuse for anything, I would have used it. He said, I want you to make a commitment to me, to the God of your understanding, to this man and to yourself, that you're going to go to work for him. You're going to be the very first man there every single day. You'll do anything this man asks you to do. You'll never give an excuse. He goes, you will, you will, bottom line, you will never ask him how much he's paying you. Whatever he pays you is a lot more than you're worth. <laughs> and, uh, and you will go and practice the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous at work. Now, I don't know if you all know that, but painters are drunks. <laughs> and this is one of the largest painting companies in Southern California. And uh, they had about 150 men. It was in the tracks. We were going real big. And, and I'd pull up and I was the only sober person there. And it was, you go out there Monday morning, it was like pulling up to detox, you know, and uh, <laughs> and I showed up, I was the very first there, and I'd be there and think, well, fellas, another golden, glorious day, ain't it? You know, and uh, God, they hated me. And uh, I'd go to work, and they'd say, you work down there by yourself. You know, they didn't want me around them. I was too happy, and I didn't get high. They thought I was a narc, you know, and... Uh, I go do whatever they told me to do, and then one day on this, this guy Steve was giving me a ride home, and he says, "You're in that A and A, aren't you?" I said, "Why? I don't cop to nothing, you know." And I, why do you ask? He says, "Well, he says I know people that know you, and I know about you, and you're always happy, and you're always the first one here, and you don't get high with us at lunchtime. You sit over there and you read that big old ugly blue book." I said, why do you ask? He says, well, he says, I used to be in AA, you know. I've just gotten dry. I just can't go back in there and raise my hand again. I said, really? I said, how long have you been doing it? He goes, oh, man, six months. I busted out laughing. He said, what are you laughing? I told him about my six years of doing this. And he said, really? I said, yeah. I said, tell you what, Steve. I said, I've got a driver's license and i got a ride to a meeting every night of the week. But, uh... On Wednesday nights, I have a hell of a time getting to a meeting. I said, I live right behind this honky-tonk called Smitty's. And I said, you come on over on Wednesday night after work. Me and you will sit around. We'll read this big book. It's right at the back door. If you change your mind, I'll buy you a drink. You know? But we'll sit there, and you can get 30 days sober. You can sneak back in the meetings. You won't have to raise your hand. <laughs> We're always looking for an angle, you know? You said, okay, I'll do that. Steve came over and we started reading that book together, you know, and uh, people at work started noticing the difference in Steve. I, don't, I never talked about AA out there. Pretty soon they wanted to go out from Steve. He said, well, we go over to Kipps and we talk after work. And after a while, there was about 15 painters at my house on Wednesday night. <laughs> and there was, there was one night there, I remember we were sitting there we're in a circle around this tree, and there's our superintendent pulls up, the biggest drug addict in Southern California. You know, and he pulls up, he sees us all sitting in there in a circle. He grabs a six-pack of beer and a joint, runs up, sits next to me at the meeting, and 
He cracks a beer. He offers a beer over here. And he goes up the beer over there. Nobody wanted one. He lit this joint, tried to pass it around. Nobody wanted any. Pretty soon he started listening. We were talking about my personal concept of God. He goes, Kit, what the hell's going on here? I said, we're having us an A&A meeting, Warren. He jumped up, knocked over his table. He said, good God, I'm not that bad. <laughs> Warren just celebrated seven years of sobriety, I'd like to tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you how God's worked in my life. I became a painting contractor. A very, very successful one in Southern California. I got my license. I went and passed a test that, that I couldn't do. But I could with God's help. I met the woman of my dreams and I married her. The state of California gave me my driver's license back at three years. And the same day they gave me my driver's license, I went down and bought me a brand new pickup and I paid cash. And I come home and I just signed a contract with a, a, a gigantic building downtown San Diego. And I was sitting there wondering, well, God, how'd this happen? And the phone rang. And I picked up the phone and I, it was this gal. And she says, is your name Kip? And I said, yeah. She goes, do you know Sandy so-and-so? And I said, boy, I haven't heard that name in a long time. She goes, that's my mama. She goes, and you're my daddy. And I want to get to meet you. I want to get to know you. And I want you to meet your grandchildren. Could have knocked me over with a feather. And I'll tell you a problem that I've had. There ain't nothing I'm proud of. I spent a lot of time in institutions and jails. And I didn't know anything about racism until I got there, but I sure learned about it when I got there. And I'm telling you that at three years sober, I was still very prejudiced. I didn't want to admit it, but in here I was. I started talking to my daughter. My daughter, God sure has a sense of humor in my life. She goes, Dad, before we met, she goes, I want to tell you something about your grandchildren. They're black. Well. <laughs> well, what are you going to do about that? She brought those kids over to me and she put them in my arms. They called me Grandpa and I fell head over heels in love. And God healed that part of me, you know. At nine years sober, I had everything I ever dreamed about having. I, I had my wildest imagination. I could not imagine. You know, I had the house. I just made an incredible amount of money. I went and traveled around Australia and experienced Alcoholics Anonymous in Australia for over two months in a... My kids were healthy and everything in my life was so wonderful. And uh, I came home and I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm reading the newspaper. And I'm reading about this woman who a man had broke into her house. And sexually tortured her and cut her to pieces right in front of her children. And I got down to the name and it was my daughter. Now y'all don't know me very well, but I'll tell you this from my heart to yours that, uh, I am absolutely perfectly capable of first-degree murder if you touch something I care about. I went to that hospital to go see my daughter and this man had taken a knife to my daughter, this girl that I'd looked for all these years. And he took a knife to her, to her face and to her throat and her breast. And she did not look human. She'd lost her left arm and uh, 
And I was filled with a rage that I hadn't felt in years. And see, I, I don't know. When this feeling comes over me, I don't start yelling and start screaming. I start making plans. And it's not an out hot stuff. It's cold. It's ice cold. And I start making real serious plans because when I do things, I plan on getting away with it. And all these feelings, all this old stuff started coming up inside of me. And I'm nuts, man. I am absolutely insane. And there's this rock as big as a rock of Gibraltar in my gut. And I have to read the book. I don't know what else to do, man. My sponsor told me this. He says, nothing. Not your children. Not nothing can be more important than you being sober. And I'm reading that book, man. I'm looking for a loophole. I read that thing about resentments and about anger. You know what? And it doesn't say, unless someone rapes your daughter. It says that I cannot afford the dubious luxury of living in anger and resentment because it cuts me off from the sunlight of the Spirit. And my sobriety is contingent upon my spiritual condition. And, and the minute I let go of God and take over one more time, I'll drink one more time. And I ain't never going to get to get sober. And if I don't get to get sober... I ain't going to be nothing for my daughter and my grandkids. And, and I had to, I didn't know what to do with all these feelings and all these emotions. And I had to read farther in that book. But no matter what, after I called Charlie about one of my earth-shaking problems, he always had a real simple solution. He said, it's in the book. I'd say, what page? He said, read. Start at the beginning. You'll find it. And I got to know the book pretty well by that. Because I, you know, a shoelace breaks or something like that, you know. And I, by the time something real serious happened in my life, I knew where to go. And... And it says, if you can't get rid of resentments, you have to pray for someone every single day. Hardest thing I've ever done in my life was get on my knees and pray for that man that did that to my daughter. And I got on my knees every single day, just like the book told me. And I'm not going to lie to you, and I'm not going to tell you that I forgive that man. But I will tell you this, that the insanity went away. That cold, that empty feeling that I, that I know so well, that went away. And I went to my daughter and I, I went to my grandchildren and I, I became a father and a grandfather. They didn't need an executioner. The police had this man by this time. And, and I was there for my daughter in her hour of need, the most she'd ever needed me in her life. And I was there and I was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I had the resources to help her. And I got through on the other side of that, you know, and I found out that this program works real well. And they told me I had cancer. They told me they were going to have to cut my lips off. I like my lips right where they're at. You know, I really like kissing girls, man. And, and I just couldn't quite picture it. And, uh, and I went to a doctor and they're telling me about this. And I'm in and I talk to my sponsor and he says, go to another doctor. And I'd go to another doctor and he'd tell me the same thing. And I finally went to another doctor and it was a plastic surgeon and, and a real specialist. And he did this operation and, uh, and it was successful. And I went through, of course, I'm a, I can't take pain medication for any reason. And uh, they took my lip, this and here, and they cut from here to here to here and cut a wedge out. The plastic surgery built it back up on Novocaine. I didn't know you could physically hurt that bad, you know. I had never felt anything. I always had dope, man. That's all nerves, man. I walked around, nutty in a fruitcake. But I'm scared to death. You see, I'm still in emotional pain about my daughter. I can't put any drugs in my body right now. My disease don't know the difference. 
And I got through that, you know, and I didn't have to take any pain medication and, and everything worked, you know. And, and I came home to my wife and I'd noticed something was going on with my wife. We had always been extremely close. And uh, I came up to her and I said, honey, what's up with you? She started crying and she said, me and you got to talk. So we went in the living room and sit down and she looked at me and her, her eyes were real wet and, uh, and the tears running down her face. She says, Kip, she says, I love you. She says, you're the best husband, the best man I've ever known in my life. But I can't live this lie no more. And I said, what? What are you talking about? She said, Kip, she says, I'm a lesbian. And I'm in love with this lady. And I have to go. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> And I did what I've always done when I'm full of fear. I lashed out with anger. And I said some horrible things to her. And I hurt her. Not physically, but mentally. And I went to a very good friend of mine who's uh, very responsible for my becoming a Catholic priest in this program called Father Bill W. And I went to see Father Bill and I took him aside and I, I mean, he went in the room and I started telling him about my sad woe and about how badly I had been treated. And uh, I can't tell you from the podium part of it. Some of you that know me know what he said to me and I won't repeat it from the podium, but uh, humorous. But this is what he did say after he listened. He says, Kip, he says, uh, you remind me of that guy on page 62. I said, what guy? What are you talking about? He goes, you know that guy. I thought he could rest satisfaction out of life if he only managed well. I go, what do you mean? But you know that guy that uh, sometimes he was kind and nice and generous, and modest and self-sacrificing. Sometimes he was mean and evil and egotistical. But bottom line, this man never did nothing without a hook in it. Because you tell me you love this woman, you tell me how good you were to her, how good you were to her children, and how she is done you wrong did you do this all for this woman out of love or because you expected something out of it because you ever read the bottom of page 62 I said which part he said the father says the very first requirement is that we quit playing God he says who in the hell put you in charge of your wife's sexuality you don't own her he said and I'm your confessor and I know a lot about yours I was mad, man. I walked out of there. I was pissed off. And I went and I wrote about it. And I wrote about love. I wrote, I did an inventory about what love was. You know, you know the only thing I know about love, I learned from you people. Nobody asked me about my sexuality when I walked in these doors. Nobody asked me about religion. Nobody asked me what I wanted to eat or anything else. They asked me if I had a desire to stop drinking. And you people loved me. I, I mean, I have stolen your money in AA meetings. I have puked on your floors and passed out. And you loved me and you told me to come back. My children taught me about unconditional love. They absolutely loved me, no matter what. They loved me. That's all I know about is a love that I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had to go back to that woman that I loved. And I realized that I truly did love this woman. And I wrote her a long letter and I did it in person and, and I made amends to her and explained to her 
that I always would be her friend. You know, and I, and she is one of my dearest friends today. Her and her lover are two of my best friends. And uh, in fact, me and her lover were on the same committee for the next art convention coming up. And uh, and he, she just bought her a brand new Harley, and she came over to see me, and that pissed me off. You know. <laughs> and you see, I didn't know you could do that. A woman does me wrong, man. I kick you to the curb and go next. You know. And you're a bitch if you treat me wrong, you know, and uh, I love that when I see these guys and they go, and they're, they're, you know, they're talking about their ex life, that bitch. I go, why would you marry a bitch? <laughs> well, wow, she wasn't a bitch when I married her. I said, well, what the hell did you do to her? This man came to me right after that, and um, something I've been dreading for years. This man came up to me, he sought me out, and he came up to me and he asked me for my daughter's hand in marriage. I didn't think about it a lot that night. I said, let me think about it. I don't make decisions like that. And I was amazed. This is a real good man. He, came, he thought enough of me and my daughter to come and ask me. I went back to that man and I told him, I said, you love my daughter? He goes, yep. I said, okay, I'm going to tell you something, pal. I said, I want you to listen real close. I'm only going to tell you once. I said, if you ever raise a hand in anger at my daughter, don't you ever stop moving. And that's all I got to say. I gave my daughter a wedding. It was three years ago. I still make a payment of $250. <laughs> and I will to the day I die, probably. <laughs> and I gave her the kind of wedding in a place called Torrey Pines, right next to La Jolla, one of the most beautiful places in Southern California, at a real nice place. And I gave her the kind of wedding I dreamed about her having the day she was born. And I walked her down the aisle, and she looked at me exactly the way I dreamed she would look at me. And I gave her to this kind of a man I dreamed my daughter would pick out. And you guys gave me that. You gave me all my dreams. Seven days later, my son died in my arms. And my son was, uh, Davy was a special, special human being. And he taught me more about living in this world than I ever taught him. He taught me about dignity and he taught me about respect. He had more brain damage and he was never supposed to live, but this kid had a certain dignity. You know, and, and I got to be the kind of father that I dreamed about being. I watched that boy with all his problems graduate from high school at the age of 22 years old and walk down the aisle. I watched him succeed in the Special Olympics and things that they said he'd never be able to do. And he had one more little operation and he got a, a staph infection in his blood. And he died in my arms. And it was at that time that I got to experience the promises like I'd never really known. And I got to say, we will know serenity. We had a workshop today on the promises and I heard a lot of different things. And serenity to me has been able to be stand right in the middle of the storm and let life happen all the way around me and me not play God. 
I'm an absolutely interested observer, but I ain't in charge of nothing, you know. Do you know what a relief it is not to be God? <laughs> in charge of living and dying and all you people that don't think about me when you get up in the morning. <sighs> I got on my knees up when he died, you know, and I asked to be alone with him. And I, and I thank the God of my understanding for Alcoholics Anonymous with all my heart. Because you guys, you men and you women, you people taught me how to be a father. You gave me ten years to be the kind of father I dreamed about being the day he was born. And I was an important, important person in my son's life and he adored me and I adored him. You know. And we got to do all those things. And my men's group, we went on those camping trips together, our father and son campouts, and, and we went fishing. And me and my son, we built a boat together. And I was involved in the Special Olympics in his high school and all of the things that he did. And I was involved in his life, you know. And he loved me and I loved him. And I'll tell you what he told me just before he died. I came in to see him that morning in the hospital. And, and they said, you know, your son... He really wants to talk to you this morning. My son only speaks sign language. And I got there and his eyes were real bright that morning. And he looked at me and he got a smile that started on the inside and worked out. And he said, Daddy, he says, you don't have to worry about me no more. And I said, why? And he says, God came and talked to me last night. And he said, he's going to take care of me from now on. And you don't have to worry no more. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And my son passed on that night. I don't know a lot about religion and uh, but I know about God miracles I experienced in these rooms. But he knew something that I didn't know. And I got to know serenity. I got to understand that I'm not in charge of life and death. And nothing of this was personal. This was my son's. Nothing to do with me. I found out that I could hurt more than you. I didn't know you could hurt that much. I did not know a human being could hurt that much when my son died. And at the same time, in my heart of hearts, knowing this is God's business. And it ain't nothing wrong with this. I didn't know you could feel that way. I got out of there and you know, it was just me. There was nothing left. Just all the money was gone. Everything in my life was gone. Ten years sober. I was scared to death to be alone. One more time. I'd had a family for a long time and I was scared to death to be alone. My sponsor taught me about fear. He said there's only one way to do it. Fear, that's... Walk right through the center of it. So it was Christmas. I didn't want to be alone. I, I, went, I went out to the desert. I don't, I don't live about an hour and I went out to the Mojave Desert all by myself on Christmas. Two days. And I, I spent three days out there completely by myself. And, uh, and I got to experience. And I realized one day this loneliness was so big and finally I surrendered to it and I realized I wasn't alone. And I knew I was comfortable with me. That I didn't need another human being to make me happy or to comfort me that my God is with me no matter where I go and I was comfortable and I learned something that I didn't I didn't know and I got to experience something real magic I decided that I wanted to go to school I've only been to the 8th grade so I made this plan of what I want to be and I I went to this school and I told them what I wanted to be they say that's going to take you about 5 years I told them I'll give you 2 <laughs> They said, you can't do that. And I said, people have been telling me a lot of that. And, you know, and, uh, I started going to school. I went to school the same way I go to AA. A teacher was my sponsor. If I had a question, I'd ask him. I didn't hesitate. I drove him nuts, you know. 
They hated me in that class. He told me to read. He told me to write. He told me to suit up and show up on a regular basis and do what he told me to do, and I did it. I was about halfway through a school, and all of a sudden they said, you know what, we need your high school diploma. I said, I've never been to high school. They went, you can't do this. I'm not sure I can, and I'm doing it. And he said, no, no, you have to have this diploma to go with your degree and everything. I said, so what do I do? He goes, well, you're going to have to go back and go to GED and all this stuff. And, it, and I went there, and I said, I need to do this. And they said, well, you're going to have to come to these classes for six or seven weeks and go to that. I said, well, i got to have it next week. <laughs> and they said, you can't do that. I took their test. I got a 97, and um, I didn't know I could do that. <laughs> and I got right up. I, went to, I took 24 units for two years, a quarter with no breaks. I'm a little obsessive. And uh, I'm not telling you I, I had a 4.0, you know, but I went there to learn. I, wasn't, I didn't care so much about the grade as I wanted to learn some things. And uh, I'm 12 units away from my bachelor's degree. And I went to a meeting and I was absolutely nuts and I listened to a man with the same amount of sobriety as me sharing how he just got drunk after 10 years because he went back to school and he got so locked in that he forgot his priorities. And I thanked God for that man and I went and shook his hand and hugged him and said, thank you so much. So if you've gone back out, man, come back in here and save us, please. And I stopped school. I'm going to go back and I'm going to finish that one day, you know. But I got, I got a degree to do some of the things that I wanted to do, you know. And I, About a year ago, I got on my knees in my morning meditation. I'd just be in me and my dog for a long time. And I said, God, if it's okay with you, it's okay with me. I'd like to experience love one more time in my life. And I had this vision of this beautiful woman. credit cards <laughs> and about four months later I got a phone call and uh, this lady I know and she goes I called you up to let you know about my daughter and I said what the girl that I'd been dating I hadn't seen her in about a year and uh, she said she got, in, got drunk one more time and she got in a real bad car wreck and she broke her legs up about 18 places and she has brain damage and uh and you got to come and get your baby. I went, what? What are you talking? She goes, she didn't tell you? I said, no. She goes, you got a four-month-old daughter, Kim. I jumped in my car and I went up there and they put that baby in my arms. And I got to experience love one more time in my life. She just turned 18 months and... Uh, Oh, Lord, what a blessing. I was at a meeting and uh, my daughter goes there. I got her. I had to speak at a meeting that night and I drove up to L.A. to pick her up. I didn't have time to take her anywhere else. I took her right in. I set her on the podium. And I'm looking at her. I proceeded to tell these people the story. <laughs> and she goes to meetings with me because I didn't have no one else. And I was, it was a, my home group was a Vista Beginners meeting. Uh, there was a gal I got sober in there and, 
And this gal took a shine to my daughter. It was like nothing I ever seen. And, and she fit right in her arms, you know. Just fit right there. And I looked at the way she looked at that baby. And I looked at the way my baby looked at her. Like, and we got married four months ago. And she is my dearest, dearest friend. She's my soulmate. She's a... Last night, I called. My Both my ex-wives were at my house with my wife. <laughs> the girl she sponsors, my mom, and my daughter. And they were all watching fireworks, eating homemade peach ice cream and... uh and that's a miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because all three of those women are in Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're all sober and we're all good parents and we're all dear friends. On September 7th, remember I told you to remember that date? On September 7th, my wife is going to give me another son. I just turned 49 years old. And I ain't afraid of life. They said, aren't you afraid to have a baby at this age? I said, I ain't afraid of life. God's in charge of my life. If I was in charge of my life, I'd be absolutely terrified. <laughs> God's in charge of life and death, and it ain't none of my business. He gave me another baby to love and to hold in my arms. And this baby's never prayed to God. He's never going to see me drunk. And I am the absolute richest man on the face of the earth. I am God's favorite kid. I swear to God, I am God's favorite kid. You hear a lot of tragedies from me, but they're not tragedies. It was life. That's all. Nothing personal. Life. I came here to learn how to accept life on life's terms. You see, that had always been my problem. Alcohol was my solution. I could not accept life. I learned how to do that here. I learned. I learned that any time I'm nuts and my skin don't fit... And I'm talking about you behind your back. The only thing that's going on, anytime I got those feelings going on, is that I'm playing God one more time. I've grown in this program, and my God suit don't fit too well no more. It gets real uncomfortable in there when I put the God suit back on, and I, I know the promises all come true to me. When I am allowing the God of my understanding to be in charge of my life. I love that part now. One of the books says that uh, all my troubles are of my own making today. You know, the Alcoholics Anonymous has given me purpose to my life. You know, I want to thank all of you. All of you that have reached out since I've been here. And, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate through my work and through my travels. I've got to experience Alcoholics Anonymous in a number of countries and every, all across the United States in a... And you know it's the same in everywhere I've ever been. I've been into meetings in, in the jungles of Australia where sometimes people only get to go to one meeting in a two-month period and it takes a week to get to this spot. And it was just like the meetings I've been here, you know. And I love Alcoholics Anonymous and I love the life that you people have given me and the manner of living that you've taught. You know, I'm going to give you one more promise that ain't in the book, but my, my sponsor gave me this promise just before he died. He said, Kip, he says, I'm going to make you a promise. He says, I don't know when this is going to happen to you, but he says, someday. He says, I'll guarantee you this is going to happen. He says, someday, if you'll do what you've been doing, 
If you'll live by the principles of those first 164 pages, you'll trust God, clean house, and help others. If you'll take responsibility for all of your actions, for all of your reactions to other people's actions, and all of your inactions, one day you're going to walk by the mirror about midnight when there ain't no one there to impress. It's just going to be you. And out of the corner of the eye, you're going to see the man looking back that you always wanted to be when you were that nine-year-old kid. And I can't tell you that I'm any big deal. But as I stand before you tonight, you know, I am the best human being I've ever been in every aspect of my life. And I got a long way to go. But as I stand here tonight, this is the best I've ever been. And I would not trade my life with anybody in the world. I would not change one event in my life. I want to thank you all for letting me be here tonight. And I want to tell if there's anyone new here, just one little message, you know, that no matter what you got to do to stay sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a hell lot easier to stay sober than it is to get sober. And God bless you all. Thank